Well, hey, if, if you're here this morning and, and if you've been around church any amount of time, you know that your relationship to the church is very important. It's a crucial relationship that we have. And a lot of times when we enter into relationship, not necessarily with the church, um, but just relationships in, in general, a dating relationship, marriage relationship, a, a friend relationship, son uh, daughter relationship, we can often bring in some expectations of what that relationship should be or shouldn't be, often based on a Hallmark movie that we watched right around Christmas time that just melted our hearts, or a parenting book that um, really maybe isn't very helpful, or, and let me know if this is too hot or too not, not hot enough, but um, anyways, it's pretty hot. We can bring in these expectations of what a relationship should be or shouldn't be. And oftentimes what, what happens, as you know, is there's letdowns, there's frustrations. Because, well, I thought this relationship was going to be this or that, and it turns out not to be that. And in the same way, we can enter into relationship with church, the group of people that God is calling out of this world, with some of those same uh, expectations and we bring in the Hallmark movie expectations in that parenting book or that dating relationship advice from the person who never really dated, and we get let down, unfortunately. And so the question I think that we should be asking today, and I think that uh, th this text is going to answer, is what ought the church be? What should mark us? What should define us as the people of God? I promise you we're going to get this mic squared away by the end of this thing. Just, just right. Good. Cool. So the question we're asking is, what should define us? What should mark us as the people of God? Turn with me to Colossians chapter 4, and we're going to be in verse 7 through 18. If you haven't done that already, if you're new to the New Testament or to the Scriptures, uh, the book of Colossians is before the letter to the Thessalonians and then right after um, the Philippian letter. And... Um, yeah, we're going to, there's a lot that could be said about this text. Actually, I told someone, yeah, I'm teaching on this text. And they said, well, you kind of got the short end of the stick there. This is an interesting text. Paul is kind of commending some of his fellow companions and giving some heads up about some people. Uh, but I think that what we're going to see here is with these men that were with Paul, there's characteristics that, that we see defined here that we should also see within the context of the church, the entire body of Christ. So just to do a little bit of context, um, you've probably all been here for the book of Philipp or uh, excuse me, we're in Colossians. But in the very beginning of Colossians, Paul is addressing to this young church who had been lied to from false teachers. And he's, he's addressing the supremacy of Jesus Christ over and above all things. And then he moves into the end of that chapter and into chapter two, describing who he was. He said, this, this is what my ministry labor has involved. And then in chapter 2, he goes on to define some of the, the, uh, the lies that they were being told, that you can become spiritually whole through legalism or through asceticism or through anything other than just Christ alone. It was Christ plus other things, other messages. And then in chapter 3, like you saw last week, God, through his people, is starting a new genesis. It is a progressive message, as Pastor Sam had said. And so God, through his people, is restoring all things. 
And so this is where we find ourselves today in this text is the the people of God and kind of who they should be. Again, we're going to see uh, three defining characteristics of what the church ought to be. So would you pray with me first and then we're going to just go and uh, enter into our text. Father, we love you. Jesus, you are our treasure. You are our joy. And as your people, the people of the Spirit today, we long to be more like you. We long to be more holy and more the people that you've called us to be. So we pray now, Lord, by the power of your Spirit and by the power of your Word, you would shape us, you would change us. Lord, you would convict and comfort us. Call us to be the people that you're calling us to be in Jesus' name. Amen. So first we're going to see today, if you're taking notes, that the church should be family. First we're going to see the church should be family. And if you've been in church any amount of time, that doesn't shock you. You might have just yawned in your mind, like, yeah, I've heard this, Cody. But what we're going to see is, is what does that actually look like? Not just a cliche statement, but what does that actually mean? How does that get played out? So look with me in verse 7, and uh, we're going to move through verse 7 through 9 as we look at the church should be family. Paul says this, he says, As to all my affairs, Tychicus, our beloved brother and faithful servant and fellow bondservant in the Lord, will bring you information. For I have sent him to you for this very purpose, that you may know about our circumstances and that he may encourage your hearts. And with him, Onesimus, our faithful and beloved brother, who is one of your number, they will inform you about the whole situation here. So Paul is sending these two men, Tychicus and Onesimus, to this young church to bring them information. Emails, texts, Snapchats, that this wasn't a thing in their day. So he's sending these guys and saying, hey, tell them how we're doing. Give them information about what's going on in our world. Interesting as well, these two men would have been responsible for bringing this letter to the Colossian people, as well as uh, the letter to the Laodiceans. You see that in uh, chapter 4, verse 16, there was a letter that was being brought to them. And interesting, Paul actually wanted them to get the Colossian letter and then the Laodiceans to get, or excuse me, and then the Colossians to get their letter. So he wanted to switch those letters up. And they also were probably packing with them the letter to the church of Ephesus. Kind of interesting. And this man named Onesimus, I'm sure Sam has probably mentioned it by now. If not, here it goes. Uh, Onesimus uh, was actually... Uh, a member of this church, and he had previously been a slave to a man named Philemon. And he ran away from this man named Philemon, ended up getting converted with Paul, because that's what happens when you meet Paul, you get converted, becomes a follower of Jesus, and uh, Onesimus was likely bringing Paul's letter to Philemon, uh, which was a letter of of commending Onesimus to Philemon, that he should let him be free and to serve Paul. So that's just kind of interesting. But Paul refers to both of these men with uh, a few words that are all the same. He says that both of these men are beloved, faithful, and brother. And there's a lot that could be said about this whole text, but what I'm deciding to do at this point in our time is to look at this word brother. For Paul, 
These men that he was with, the church as a whole, they weren't just business partners. They weren't just friends or companions, but they were family. These were his brothers. This was a close connection that he had with these men. These weren't just men that they would see for an hour-long worship service on Sunday. They were in each other's lives. They were in each other's corner. They were family. And and then in the New Testament, as you know, there's a lot of different depictions of the church, soldiers, a temple. Uh, We see the church as the body of Christ, as a sheepfold, as a, a vineyard, you know, the vine and the branches. But most prominent out of the entire New Testament teaching is that of family. The ecclesia, the church, is God's family. And one, when, when you enter into church, when you become a Christian, you are a part of the family of God. Just listen to some of these verses in the New Testament, just a couple for us. 1 John 3, 1, the Apostle John says, See how great a love the Father has bestowed on us, that we would be called the children of God, and such we are. God's our Father, and we're His kids. In Romans 8, 15, Paul says that we've not been given the spirit of slavery leading to fear again, but the spirit of adoption by which we cry, Abba, Father, Papa. When you enter into the church and you're filled with the Holy Spirit, that's what happens when God saves you. We become a part of His very own family. He adopts us out of darkness. He calls an orphan His son, an orphan His daughter. And then we get to call each other brother and sister. Pastor Sam actually said last week, did you know that you are more closely connected eternally, spiritually, even physically to the people sitting next to you than you are even your own blood family? That is true. And I say yes and amen to that. He continues, the connection that you have with the church is the deepest familial connection that you have. I just want to ask at this point in our our time together, are you a part of the family of God? And not just, yeah, I've been at church for a while, I've been going to church, but do you know Jesus as your brother? Do you know God, the creator of all things, as your dad? And do you know those people sitting next to you? That's my sister, it's my brother. If not, you say, you know, I, I think I've been at church for a long time, but I'm not sure that's me. It's so simple. There's no documents that you need to sign. There's no, maybe you guys do have a membership document. I take that back. No, not yet. Okay. Okay, yeah, just, we just want to know how your tax bracket, things like that. But you trust Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sin. You say, God, I'm a sinner. I've done wrong. I know that I've offended you, but I believe Jesus died for my sins and rose again. And that if you believe that message and you trust Jesus, you will be invited into the very family of God. And if you're here and that's happened for you, your heart, my heart, ought to be singing with joy. We're a part of a family that is eternal and meaningful in every way, which reminds me of Thanksgiving. So for most of us, maybe even right now, some of you moms are in the the back of your mind are planning Thanksgiving. Okay, where are we going to have it? What kind of food are we going to have besides turkey? Okay, last year, just a little pro tip on Thanksgiving. We brined our turkey, or I should say my mom and dad brined their turkey. Okay, YouTube it, Google it later. It was amazing. It was super, super good. 
But we're asking that question, what should we do for Thanksgiving? Whose house are we gonna have? Is my aunt gonna bring the green bean casserole? But as you know, at a Thanksgiving dinner or any kind of family reunion meal, there's some interesting dynamics there at play. You know, you have the quirky uncle who's just a little weird. You have the dad jokes. You got the nephew shooting BB guns at birds outside. You know, the toddlers are tossing toys everywhere and you get a Lego in your toe. It's an interesting experience. It's not perfect. It's messy. It's, it's different. It's a little awkward sometimes. But that's family, isn't it? We just learn to be gracious with one another and to be tolerant of one another's different perspectives on you name it. And this is the church. Sometimes our perspective of the church, when we come into the church, our lens is that everyone should be perfect and no one should ever offend me and everyone should see politics the same way I do and scriptures the exact same way I do. But as you know, it it can be messy. But as we're a part of the body of Christ and this family that we're connected by, it's eternally connecting and it's planned by our Father carried out by our brother, King Jesus, and sealed and applied by the work of the Holy Spirit. And it really is a miracle that God can do this. And I'll I'll just be honest, during worship, as there's just a sweet living room family feel here at Philippi Church. And so just church, just know that as someone who's been here twice, there's a sweetness here that you should be commended for, amen? But, okay, here it is. Unfortunately, many of our church experience or a lot of contemporary church evangelical experience feels like a concert or a show, a perfect production, a business endeavor, a self-help program, a classroom with curriculum that looks like it was put together by Disney, right? We come to this show and we want the performance and then we kind of check out afterwards, And so I just want to ask us, as we're thinking about church being family, brothers and sisters, does your church experience feel like family? Does it feel homey? Does it feel like somewhere you could kick your shoes off and stay a while? Please don't today. But (laughs) metaphorically speaking, is that something that you could see yourself doing? And if not, why not? And, and then the question is, how might you, how might I be a part of the solution to change that? Just a couple suggestions here. If you've been walking with Jesus for a while, um, maybe consider being a spiritual father or mother to someone who's newer in the faith. You say, you know, that guy across the room, I know he's a little bit newer in the faith. He just got baptized. I, I want to see him grow up in the faith. And I don't know if he's got a spiritual mother or father. Maybe take someone under your wing. Say, we're going to get coffee. We're going to go hit golf balls. We're going to go whatever you like to do. So consider that. Or if you're younger in the faith, seek out a spiritual father or mother. Someone that you could say, hey, I see that you've been walking with Jesus for 10, 20, 30 years, and I want what you have. Would you teach me to walk with Jesus? Or maybe not a spiritual brother or a father and mother situation, but maybe you can be a big brother in the faith, a big sister in the faith. To take someone along and say, I've, just, I've been here before, let me help you to walk with Jesus. Consider that. Maybe something else that we could try a little bit more of, and, and this is becoming less and less common, but maybe opening up our home to exercise hospitality, to share a meal, to do a game night, 
to do things that families do, right? Uh, that would be something that, that would be really sweet. And I'd say this, this last one, allow trusted brothers and sisters in Christ to know you deeply. Is there someone in your life who you can confess sin to? Someone in your life that you say, I've really been struggling with this area of theology and I have my doubts, can I share that with you? Or I blew it on my wife on the way here, can I just share that with you? Can you speak grace and gospel into my life? Is there someone in your life that you're, you're that close with? And I think that's so important, even if it's not everybody. I don't think it's realistic that we have that depth of relationship with every single person. But even just one or two people that knows you deeply, that knows your sin, that knows your baggage, and know, knows how to speak grace and, and the gospel into your life. I wanna say this lastly. If, if you're here and you've been hurt by church, you've been hurt by the church family, I think all of us can probably resonate with that. As a representative of Jesus and of the church, I just wanna say, I'm so sorry. It can be so hurtful when someone you thought was looking out for your best interest, maybe was a spiritual authority even, and you felt spiritual abuse. I just wanna say, I'm so sorry on behalf of the church. It's wrong and there's no excuse for that. Will you forgive us? So the church should be family. Um, I wanna do a little bit of a sidebar, okay, so I'm saving you because I wanted to do a whole nother point on this because I think it's worth that, but I'm, at least let me do a sidebar. Look with me in verse 10. We're specifically gonna look at this guy named Mark, uh, which the Bible calls John Mark elsewhere. Paul says in verse 10, Aristarchus, my fellow uh, prisoner, sends you his greetings and also Barnabas's cousin Mark, whom you received instructions. If he comes to you, welcome him. And also Jesus, who is called Justice. These are the only fellow workers for the kingdom of God who are from the circumcision, and they have proved to be an encouragement to me. Now, why I want to highlight this guy named Mark is if you'll remember, and you guys actually, a lot of you went through the book of Acts not too long ago, there was a division between Paul and this guy named Mark. Mark, during Paul's first missionary journey with Barnabas, took off in Pamphylia. For whatever reason, the text doesn't say. He broke off from them and did his own thing. Might have been fear, might have had some different priorities. Uh, we're not really sure. But on their second missionary journey, Paul said, hey, I want to go and visit some of these trips. My wife is doing this. Like, get that thing figured out. She's really helpful that way. On their second missionary journey, Paul said, I want to go visit some of these churches that we've started, these people that we've discipled. And Barnabas is like, cool, let me bring my cousin Mark. And Paul was not having it. Hey, he bailed on us in Pamphylia when we needed him. This is life or death mission stuff, and you can't have someone who you can't count on. And it was so uh, sharp, actually it says in Acts 15, 39, there occurred such a sharp disagreement that they separated from one another, and Barnabas took Mark with him and sailed away to Cyprus. All right, well then I'm gonna take uh, my guy and you take your guy, and they, they actually divided. So Paul wasn't actually originally a fan of this guy, Barnabas, but here he is saying, welcome him. He's an encouragement to me. And actually he tells Pastor Timothy in 2 Timothy 4 to pick up Mark and bring him with you for he is useful to me for service. So apparently Mark had a maturation process worked out in his life and, and Paul recognized that. 
And so this is just really quick. Here's our sidebar. Mark is an example for us that even if we failed a ministry attempt, even if we dropped the ball or if we had a moral failure, whatever it is, God can still use us. God can still make us an encouragement. And as you know, uh, Mark is actually the one who went to pen uh, the gospel of Mark. So God still used him in a powerful way. If you're here and you feel like, you know, I blew it, I blew that ministry opportunity, or some people were counting on me and, and, I, and I dropped the ball, or, you know, I blew it in any way, uh, just know that Mark can be an example of what God can do with a broken, fickle man. I know a lot of times I feel broken and very fickle, and uh, Mark is an encouragement to me, and Paul says, hey, you welcome that guy. He is with me, and he's an encouragement to me. Okay, that was free. Let's keep moving here. So the church should be family, and secondly, the church should be praying. We're going to see this in the life of this man named Epaphras. One theologian, uh, theologian notes this, that great position, wide influence, outstanding ability may be lacking to almost all of us. Amen? But the humblest and least significant Christian can pray. And as prayer moves the hand that moves the world, perhaps the greatest power we can exert is that which comes through prayer. Look with me in verse 12. Paul continues, and he says, Epaphras, who is one of your number, a bond slave of Jesus Christ, sends you his greetings, always laboring earnestly for you in his prayers that you may stand perfect and fully assured in all the will of God. This man, Epaphras, he was noted in the uh, very beginning of this letter, he was at least responsible for evangelizing the Colossian church, maybe even planting it. Um, and uh, potentially, yeah, he was the church planter. And here he is praying for them, and Paul sees this, and he wants them to know this. And I want you to take note of the adjective used to describe the frequency of Epaphras' prayer, always. And always in the Greek means always. He was always praying for the saints in Colossae. What a noteworthy thing to be said. And Epaphras is actually living out what Paul said to the Thessalonians, that we should pray without ceasing, always praying. Paul often said in his letters to the churches, hey, we're always praying for you. We're mindful of you in our prayers before the Lord. And then also note the verb that he uses to describe what that practically looked like in the life of Epaphras. Okay, so he's always praying, but what does that actually look like? He says, laboring earnestly, working hard at, or your translation might say, to struggle in prayer, wrestle in prayer. And that's exactly what this word means, is to strain, to fight for his brothers and sisters in prayer. I actually lost uh, in a really important fight this week. Currently, I'm doing construction or free-spiriting, as our friend Sam said. And uh, I'm doing construction in Medford, and I wedged my chisel into this 2 by 4 and was trying to break the thing apart, and I'm wedging this chisel in there, and it gets stuck. So then I'm fighting on this thing. I'm straining to pull this thing out, and so I start hitting on it with my hammer, and it starts getting like this and like this, and one last wham, and the chisel flew out and hit my face. Ended up having, yeah, face chisel. <laughs> okay, 
My wife is like, did you wear safety glasses? I'm like, well, that wouldn't help. I mean, it hit my face. Luckily, I, I just got my face and not my eye, but that was a lost battle, okay? I just wanted you to know that. But, but I was fighting and I lost. But think about how maybe a big brother or a big sister would step in to protect his little brother or sister from a bully. Think about how a mama bear, either human or real bear, will take out someone who's intruding on her little cubs, right? Like that, that intensity, that's what Epaphras was known for. And that's what he was doing for his friends. And so then I want to ask the question, is what would lead someone, what would lead you and I to fight with such intensity and passion for our brothers and sisters in Christ? As you know, prayer is a labor you start to doze off, your mind wanders. Like it takes discipline and hard work to pray. A lot of people don't know that about pastors. But you pray for hours and it's really hard and it's actual labor. What would lead someone to fight in such way? Look with me in the second part of verse 12. He gives a reason. He says that you may stand perfect and fully assured in all the will of God. What drove Epaphras' prayer life and the intensity of his prayer life was that he would see his brothers and sisters in Christ grow and mature, that they would be assured in all the will of God, that they would become perfect, complete. Perfect not meaning you know, immoral or whatever, but just like growing in the image of Christ. This is actually almost identical to what Paul prays for the Colossians in chapter 1, verse 9, where he says, For this reason also, since the day we heard of it, we have not ceased to pray for you and to ask that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will and all spiritual wisdom. And as Sam had said a while back, I listened to Sam preach, so there, that's, that's why I know this. He said, It's not like discerning the yellow brick road for God's will for our life. Should I date this person? Should I get this job? Should I buy this house? That's not what Paul is talking about. Epaphras is praying that these guys would know the cosmic plan of God, that he is rescuing rebel sinners through Jesus Christ's atonement on the cross and the sending of the Spirit to woo and draw people to himself. He says, I want Christians, God, to know this. This is your plan. This is what you're doing in the world, and this is how you want to use them. That's what he's praying for them. That's what drove Epaphras to pray with such intensity. God, I want to see my brothers and sisters in Christ thrive spiritually. If I were to follow you around for a week, I won't do that, okay? So just put your guard down. But if I were to follow you around, if I were to follow Philippi Church around, would it be seen that you're fighting for one another in prayer? In the quiet of your home, in the quiet and stillness of your car on your way to work, when you and your wife are talking at dinner, you stop and let's just pray for that person, these issues. Is this a praying church? I think there is a couple reasons why we don't fight for one another in prayer. Like what is it that if prayer is so effective and I can commune with the God who can do whatever he wants, why is it so difficult to labor in prayer? Firstly, I think that we're not concerned enough about one another's spiritual thriving. Or at least this can be a reason. We're too stuck in our own minds. We're, we have a hard time actually thinking about others enough to actually care, to see them thriving and knowing the will of God and being assured in that. We're not concerned enough. 
Because I think to the degree that you are concerned for your brother and sister in Christ thriving, it will drive you, it will drive me to our knees to say, God, would you move for them? Please, I gotta see something happen here. I think that's what Epaphras was doing. He was so concerned. I'm convinced that to the degree we grasp the concern and need of our brothers and sisters thriving spiritually will be the degree that we will pray for one another with this kind of ferocity and intensity. If one another's spiritual thriving, our spiritual maturity and growth is just an obligation, a religious duty, something my wife makes me do, something my husband makes me do, something my parents force me into, then no wonder we're not concerned enough to pray. It's not that big of a deal. And, and to which I, I want to just ask, at what point will we be concerned enough to pray for one another? By the way, this isn't a bash on you. I don't know you. This is my own heart. Like, God always preaches to me first, right? This is how it works, Sam. When you're just wrestling with truth, it is, this is the truth. At what point will we be concerned enough? Does our friend's marriage need to fall apart before our eyes, before we start wrestling in prayer for them? Does our lost family and friends need to die and sadly to perish without knowing God for us to then start praying for others, brothers and uh, family and, and friends? Uh, does our church's effectiveness need to be on the rocks before we actually start to pray that God would thrive our church? So I don't, I don't think we're concerned enough. Um, and I, I don't know how to commend us being more concerned but just to get outside of our own minds, to be compassionate, thinking about others' issues and, and wanting them to, to thrive. Secondly, I think we don't believe God is concerned enough to listen to our prayers. Surely God on his throne is kind of just putting up with me. And he's kind of just disappointed at me all the time. He's got a permanent scowl on his face. And he'd rather me be at arm's distance and, and surely not bother me with, his, with, with my prayer requests and my petty requests that so-and-so would be thriving spiritually. But let us remember our first point, that we are the family of God. God is our dad. Nothing further from the truth. He wants to hear our concerns. I love this, uh, these verses in Psalm 116. The psalmist says in verse 1 and 2, I love the Lord. I love Yahweh. Because he hears my voice in my supplications, because he has inclined his ear to me, therefore I shall call upon him as long as I live. It's just, just amazing. The God of the universe is bending his ear and saying, what do you got? What's going on? I just can't wrap my mind around this. And so uh, just to debunk that lie, God is definitely concerned about us and our spiritual thriving, and he wants to hear our cries and our pleas. So the church should be family, the church should be praying, fighting with intensity for one another as we're concerned about each other. And then lastly, the church should be heeding ministry. Look with me in verse 14. We're gonna see this in verse 14 uh, through 18. It's specifically verse 17. He says, Luke, the beloved physician, sends you his greetings. Interesting, this is uh, Luke who wrote the book of Acts and also the, uh, the gospel of Luke. This is actually the only place that says he was a physician or a doctor. Interesting, this was his profession. Also, church history says that he was maybe a historian himself. 
So he sends his greetings also, and uh, also Demas, verse 15, greet the brethren who are in Laodicea, and also Nympha, and the church that is in her house. And when this letter is read among you, have it also read in the church of the Laodiceans. And you, for your part, read my letter that is coming from Laodicea. So this is how this would work. They would actually just read these letters from the apostles on a Sunday morning, and then they would trade letters. It's kind of cool. Hey, we're done with our letter. We'll pass you uh, that this week. And then verse 17, say to Archippus, take heed to the ministry which you have received in the Lord, that you may fulfill it. And lastly, I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. Remember my imprisonment. Grace be with you. So out of all that, I really want to hone in on verse 17, where Paul says to this guy, Archippus, sometimes if you don't know how to say someone's name in the Bible, you just go for it, and that's kind of what I'm doing here. A little pastor hack right there. Um... But this is interesting. Paul says, take heed, or it can literally be translated to see to it, or watch out for, pay attention. So he's calling Archippus to um, make sure that he was stepping into the ministry that God was calling him to. And we don't know why. This is kind of a random last thought. Oh yeah, by the way, that one guy, tell him to make sure he's stepping into the ministry that God's calling him to. Uh, Maybe he was kind of putting ministry on the back burner. Maybe he had a full schedule, his kids were in soccer practice, and he's like, you know, we'll get to that another season. Not really sure why he's um, telling this to Archippus, but needless to say, Paul is telling this guy, hey, you gotta be stepping into ministry. And our tendency, isn't it, to step back from ministry, to say, hey, that's the pastor's job. Someone else surely will do this. Um, But that's not the case. We all have ministry giftedness that, has been given to us in the Lord. Notice where this man received the gifting. It says received in the Lord. I believe that's the Lord Jesus. The Lord Jesus himself is giving to him this ministry, this service to do for the body of Christ. And this reminds us of what we see in 1 Corinthians 12, where Paul is talking to the church in Corinth about spiritual gifts, and he says, one and the same spirit works all these things, ministry gifting, spiritual gifting, and he says, distributing to each one individually just as he wills. So it's the spirit of God himself, the spirit of Jesus, who's giving the church the spiritual gifts that we need to do ministry. And I just wonder, what what if we viewed ministry this way? That if Jesus, the king of the universe himself, said, hey, I want you to do this. I'm interested in you doing this. I have, I'm actually expecting that you use your gifts. I've wired you a certain way. I want you to use these for my glory. If you'll remember, when Jesus called his disciples to follow him, they were all kind of from different backgrounds. Some were religious elite. Some were religious zealots. Uh, some were fishermen. Some were tax collectors. And out of all these men and women, they would actually ultimately have different ministry giftings. All of them were very different. Some would open up their home and and allow someone to plant a church there or to um, take care of the disciples when they're out on mission. Some would become missionaries. Some would help with organization and structure, kind of admin, secretary stuff. There's a lot of jobs within the church, within these disciples and in the book of Acts. A lot of people did a lot of different things. But the same call was on all of their lives and all of our lives to deny themselves, take up their cross, and follow Jesus in a life of abandonment. Say, okay, I'm all in King Jesus. 
I want to use my giftings, the way that you've wired me, the way your spirit has given me these gifts to bless your people. And I don't actually just mean here at the church. Because a lot of times when I say spiritual gift, you might already be assuming, okay, nursery worker and pastor. Like those are like the main jobs in the church that need to happen, right? As long as those are happening, that's, that's good. But what does it look like to use our spiritual gifts in the ministry that Jesus has given us on the soccer field? As a mom, moms, you have a ministry, a service. Ministry means service. What does it look like to use your ministry as a grandpa, as a friend, as an encourager, as a brother in Christ? What does it look like to, to do that at home, at school, wherever you find yourself, to be a Jesus person, full of the spirit of Jesus, to bless people in Jesus' name? So I want to just ask this question because a lot of us are probably maybe wrestling with, I don't really know what my spiritual gift is or my spiritual gifts. Um, and so I want to just kind of ask that question. This is a spiritual gifts test that uh, I saw a while ago in a J.D. Greer book called Jesus Continued. Uh, if we could have that slide up, please. So this is just a great, you can write it down on a napkin. You can just remember it in your head. It's super easy. But in, in discerning how has God wired me to, what ministry has the Lord given me or what ministries has he given me to do? The first question we're asking is affinity, which is passion, excitement. What, what am I desiring to do? What makes me wanna pound my fist and say, I wanna be about that. I wanna make sure that young people don't get trafficked. That's a passion I have. I, I wanna see the gospel preached. That's a passion I have. I wanna be a listener and counsel and just be a good friend for people. What are you passionate about that maybe you don't see everyone else having that same passion? So I think that's a great question to start discerning. What is God's gifting in my life? And then you wanna ask the, the bottom left corner, ability. Uh, what am I able to do that it seems like some people around me don't have that same ability? This isn't super common. This is something I, I seem to have proficiency in. By the way, this is like the simplest spiritual gifts test. Some of them are like, you gotta read a book and then take a test and the whole thing, which is fine. But I think this is just awesome because it's so easy, right? And then the last one is affirmation. We're, we're looking for the saints to be speaking affirmation into our lives to say, hey, I see this gift in you. I, I see your ability to do this. I've seen you stay afterwards and put all the chairs away. Okay, I'm not a put away the chairs kind of guy. Like that doesn't come naturally to me, but some of you are, right? So that's what we're asking, affinity, ability, and affirmation. Maybe chew on this over lunch. Talk to your friends, your family about this. Hey, what do you think I'm gifted at? Um, and I think this can just be really helpful. Well, as we close, I think it's needed to say this, that the reality is as, as much of us um, want to step into ministry and are stepping into ministry. No one is doing it perfectly. All of us struggle to step into ministry. Heck, the whole sermon. All of us struggle to be the family of Christ that we should be. All of us struggle to labor in prayer and to fight in prayer for one another and to step into ministry. And we withdraw, maybe like this guy did, from ministry opportunities because of fear because of discouragement, maybe someone said something overly critical, or, or doubt, or laziness, or faithlessness. We withdraw from ministry opportunities all the time, and then even when we do heed ministry opportunities, we're fighting 
pride and self-glory and selfishness and the fear of man and anxiety the whole time. Okay, I'm the only one, all right? Every time we step into ministry, there's a battle for flesh and self and, well, what are people going to think about me? And, oh, I, the whole thing, it's riddled with sin and brokenness. But here's the good news. Our Lord, the Lord Jesus Christ, perfectly stepped into ministry in every way. Every moment of every day, Jesus obeyed the voice of the Father for him never doing something that God himself wasn't appointing for Jesus to do, and with perfect, flawless obedience, he said, yes, Lord, every time. Never controlled by the fear of man, never filled with pride, always in humility. This is who Jesus was, and every moment of his life, he was doing this. And it often meant for Jesus ridicule, shame, embarrassment, critique, suffering, ultimately going to a cross to hang naked for rebel sinners. Every moment of his life, being obedient to the Father's will in ministry for his life. And here's the gospel. I just wanna finish on, on this note. That record of perfect obedience to ministry in every bit of his life has been applied to you if you've trusted in Jesus to forgive your sins that perfect record of righteousness, never stepping outside the bounds of God's will for his life is applied graciously, mercifully to your life and my life. And this is where we get excited, amen? Because this is heavy stuff. The church, oh my gosh, I'm so broken. You're so broken. We struggle with this. And this is where we looked at the cross and said, but he's paid it all. And all to him I owe. Amen? And this is, this is the good news. We can walk out of here feeling like, well, I'm a terrible Christian. I'm not even a good brother or sister in Christ. I've never mentored anybody. And I don't pray for people like I should. And I sure am not stepping into ministry faithfully. This is the good news of the gospel. Jesus has paid it all. And we get to freely step into that. And God sees us as righteous. And out of that place of Jesus' obedience and his righteousness, we step into ministry. And we say, okay, Lord, I'm gonna try. I'm gonna stumble, I'm gonna fall. I might make someone upset, but I'm gonna do what you've called me to do because of your record of righteousness. Amen. Mic drop, that was, that was a, literally a mic drop. I should have just stopped. Oh, man. So as the church, we should be family. Brothers and sisters in Jesus Christ, with the Father who cares for us, the Spirit applying that work to our hearts, praying for one another. Again, what does it look like to intensify your concern for your brother and sister in Christ to the degree that you say, I'm gonna fight, I'm gonna fight, I'm gonna fight for them. And lastly, we should be heeding ministry, knowing that Jesus has heeded ministry perfectly and we can step into his obedience and live it out that way. Let's pray. Father, we do trust you that your son, Jesus Christ, lived the life we should have lived and died the torturous, wrath-absorbing life, death that we should have. And this frees us up in all our brokenness and all our sin and all our inability to be unified and loving and caring and concerning for one another. We see you pouring out your love for us in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. We love you, Lord, and we trust you today in Jesus' name.
Amen.